Many of you speak multiple languages. You know that uh, one of the burdens that comes with speaking multiple languages is sometimes you have to translate things. And sometimes that's easier than others. You try to give the sense for something. Um, you try to give the sense for a joke. That's like one of the worst, right? Try to explain what's funny in one language in a way that's also going to be funny in the other language that maintains somehow the, the meaning of it just... It just doesn't work. It has roughly the same effect, maybe a little bit more, but roughly the same effect as when you have to explain a joke. Um, it just in, in English, like you tell the joke and you think it's really funny. Maybe this just happens to me. I don't know. You tell the joke and you think it's funny, and then you're like, no, no, you don't. Maybe you didn't. You didn't get it because, and then you have to explain what was actually funny about it. You kind of miss, well, the whole point, right? Because if you have to explain it, you didn't experience it. Once it's explained, it's not funny. It's, it's kind of the same thing um, with, with like poetry or music or art. There's, um, there's this challenge of trying to explain to someone why this piece of art is beautiful without doing all kinds of injustice to the beauty of the art or the poem or whatever it is you're trying to explain. I feel that intensely when we come to the Psalms, particularly a psalm like Psalm 23, that is already precious to so many people. It's, it's one of the places in scriptures when you come to the Psalms that, that you can read and immediately engage with and feel and be moved by. And now someone gets up and goes, no, no, you don't explain it. You, you don't understand it. Let me explain it to you. And I feel the danger of trying to explain the joke or explain the poem as we come to Psalm 23. There's, there's something in the form of a psalm, in the form of music, in the form of poetry, that in, its very, in the very way it's written, it's supposed to be evocative so that you sense it and experience it without someone needing to explain it to you. And yet, my job this morning is to explain Psalm 23 to you. I think the reason why many of us get Psalm 23 intuitively, why it's become so precious to us, is because it describes so well the reality of the human condition that we know intuitively we need to get somewhere. Even in, in common imagery and language, people will talk about life as a journey, uh, it's, you know, what's, what's the ultimate destination, and how's, what's, what's this path that I'm walking, you walk with someone. We, we know intuitively that we're going somewhere, and we understand as we live in this world that there are dangers. We know what it is to be needy, and to be lacking, and to not know if we're going to make it, and something of Psalm 23 just says, there is a shepherd who's going to lead you in right paths, and get you to the right place, and protect you, and keep you, and nurture you, and nourish you along the way. And something of that just intuitively speaks to our condition. It speaks to us in our vulnerability, in our lostness, in our longing for home and in our longing for rest, Psalm 23 already speaks our language, and it promises us peace. The, the, the peace is, is a progression. The psalm itself is a journey, moving through open fields and, and, and green pastures and still waters, through the deep, dark valley, and into, ultimately, the house of our Lord and our God. I want to try to understand how it is that our shepherd brings us all the way home this morning under three headings. The first one being simply this, Yahweh is 
my shepherd. Who is my shepherd? My shepherd is Yahweh. Look at verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. It's about as simple as it actually gets. I shall not want. I shall not want directly corresponds to the declaration of who my shepherd is. Because he is my shepherd, I shall not want. But what does shall not want mean? Well, if you pause and reflect on the things that make you anxious or worried or fearful, it's, it's probably similar things to what Jesus himself speaks to in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We worry about what we're going to wear and what we're going to eat and how long we're going to live and, and just the stuff of life. Are we going to be provided for? Will we be safe? Will we make it? Will we be okay? The notion of our future being out there somewhere. That's why the, the, the powerful image of darkness in the valley that's going to come. The, the reason why we're so afraid of the dark is simply because we cannot see. We recognize there's something out here that we can't see. These things evoke fear, anxiety, worry about our future, about our present safety. When David says, I shall not want, what he means is, you will be provided for, protected, cared for, and kept until the end. But notice who, who is the shepherd? It's worth asking the question very simply, who is your shepherd? Who is the one who is leading and guiding you? Whose counsel do you trust? Whose directions are authoritative for you? This shepherd can lead you and guide you, or you can choose your own path, the path of your own making, a way that you choose. He will provide for you unless you believe you can provide for yourself. He will protect you unless you trust in your own ability to plan and to protect yourself. Here is one who promises to protect you even through the valley of deep darkness, the shadow of death. Unless you believe somehow that you can conquer death for yourself. Many of us trust in ourselves in all kinds of different ways and situations in life. I know very few people who would want to jump out of an airplane with a homemade parachute. When it really comes down to it, and we really stand to lose... Friend, let's be honest, we don't really trust ourselves. We spend so much of our time pretending like we do, trying to live like we do, but here is the offer of one who can be a shepherd for us, who can guide us and keep us and protect us, but we want to cling to our autonomy. Autonomy here in Toronto is the sacred cow. You cannot touch it. You cannot assault it. You cannot even come near it. I will choose my own path. I will declare my own identity. I will declare my own morality. I will declare which, whether or not the child in my womb will live. And I will declare at the end whether I'm going to live or die. And I'm going to tell the doctor what to do and he'll make me live or die. But in all of it, I will be the one who says so. The picture could not be more of a stark contrast from a sheep simply following a shepherd. Can I suggest that maybe clinging to your autonomy so desperately is the very thing that's robbing you of peace? 
Because you know you know that the identity that you've created for yourself and the path that you have laid out for yourself are insufficient. You know they're just masks and costumes. We're all with our lives, we're just building these leaky buckets and then trying to get them to carry the, the weight, to carry the water of the burden of our souls and our eternal peace. And everything that we create, whether it's identity or morality, cannot carry the weight. We are lousy shepherds for ourselves, but we want to pretend like we're great. And it robs us of peace. Because we know that our own ways are insufficient, and we know that our ways lead to death. But we just keep trying. We just keep going. We just keep pressing in, trying again and again, denying the reality that we intuitively know. Like the, uh, like the alcoholic whose kidneys are failing but just keeps drinking to try to ignore the problem. Like the person with insurmountable debt who just keeps purchasing and purchasing and purchasing, knowing that the creditors will come calling, but thinking that somehow the purchase will bring peace. We live our lives trying to set our own paths, make our own name, our own identity, protect ourselves, keep ourselves safe, but everything that we are building will fall. In fact, it's the very thing that's killing us. But here's the alternative. Yahweh is my Shepherd, my caregiver, the one who knows where I'm sick, where I'm weak, where I need nourishment, where I need strength. He is my provider. He is my protector. The shepherd, the shepherd in the ancient Near East was an image that's not just used of intimacy, of closeness, of tenderness, but one that's used of ruling. It's, 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 word that's, it's an image that's used of a king. A king has a staff like a shepherd who shepherds his people, and he does it for his name's sake he puts his name on his people and this is his name his name is Yahweh I am who I am I will be always who I am he is the creator God who at the very beginning spoke and all things came into existence he he is the God who took on flesh and came and lived on earth as the good shepherd and suffered and died in our place and rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the father so that at the end of all time every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh to the glory of God the father This is the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the triune God who began creation and will bring this creation to a close and usher in new creation. The one who can never fail, the one who can never fall short, he is your shepherd. If you call on him, but having a shepherd means something, right? It means you have to be a sheep. Are you willing to embrace the reality of being a sheep so that you can enjoy the blessing of being led by this shepherd 
Being a sheep means saying, I don't know the right way. I don't know. I make a mess of it. I wander off and I go my own way. It means I can't provide for myself the eternal home for which I long, for which I was created. I can't keep myself or get myself there. I do not have this. Everything in culture says, you got this, you got this. But the reality is, as sheep, we say, I don't got this at all. I need a shepherd who does A shepherd who understands that this sheep has already wandered off countless times. Wandered off into patches of poisonous grass. Patches of lust and greed. Sexual immorality and envy and gossip and rivalry and dissension and slander and strife. Bitterness. Covetousness. Your sins have led you into poisonous fields. Your pride has caused you to wander from the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who calls you. If you are willing to come back like a sheep with bloodied legs and wool filled with brambles and thorns and thistles with nothing to offer your shepherd but yourself, to come in poverty of spirit and say, be my shepherd. Lead me, guide me, protect me, keep me, save me. Have you said, Yahweh, be my shepherd? If you have, then here's the promise. You shall not want. You shall not want. If Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where is that promise good? Here's the second heading. That promise is good everywhere. Wherever I am. Yahweh is my shepherd wherever I am and wherever I go. Verse 2 says this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. These these pictures, again, I I don't want to over-explain the imagery. You get it, right? It's rich imagery. It, I, I mean, even as humans, the idea of green pastures, especially in springtime in Canada, that sounds pretty nice, right? Uh, still waters, this sounds wonderful. Who doesn't want some of this? Imagine as a sheep where the, the grass is your food, it's your sustenance, it's your life, the, the water, not the rushing waters that would frighten you because you're a sheep and you're easily scared, but the peaceful waters where you can have rest physically as well as mentally. He leads you to the good places. Verse 3, he restores my soul. The, the word is, is life. He restores my life. He restores this sheep to fullness of health and to strength. The imagery is supposed to, in the present tense, help us to picture this as an eternal reality. It is always true. It is always true that our shepherd leads us to green pastures. Wherever he leads, he leads us to still waters. He never fails to restore my life, to restore my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. These sound like good times, right? The Christian can testify to these realities. 
God leads me to healthy places. He, he, he does this in all times through average and ordinary means of grace that he's given to us for all times. The gathering with Christians, the opening of my Bible, the reading of his word, the approaching him in prayer, the seeking him in fasting, the engaging in fellowship of simply encouraging and strengthening one another as brothers and sisters. He restores our soul through times of loud worship and times of calm and quiet solitude. He restores my soul. You know what this is not? It's not a promise that every season will be a season of prosperity, that you will have your bank accounts filled and friendships abounding and everything in your life will just go swimmingly and well. But what it is is a picture of the reality that our God will keep us and strengthen us in every season, so that at the end of our lives, we can say it is still true that whatever my God ordains is right. I, I had this um, uh, a philosophy professor one time in my undergrad, and I uh, remember I went to hand in a paper, and uh, there was a friend of mine, uh, a female friend of mine, who was with me at the time. We weren't dating or anything, but she was just with me. I went to hand in the paper, and as I handed it in, the philosophy professor, who um, was an open theist, uh, just believes that God doesn't know the future, um, knew that I was a Calvinist. <laughs> and he said to the girl that I was with, he must have thought we were dating, he said, watch out for him. And he was stern. He said, this is the doctrine of young men. Oh, it was intimidating. Believing that God knows all things and sovereignty reigns over all things apparently is a dangerous doctrine. Here's the thing. Over 20 years have passed and I have walked with God and I have seen, I've seen, this is the beauty of aging as a Christian. The reality is that we don't hold to God's sovereignty over all things with a coldness and a crassness and a philosophical objectivity, but with the clinging of a desperate heart that says, even here, you're still good. <laughs> and it's always true. Our God sustains. He leads me. He leads me in right paths. Righteous, paths of righteousness is translated in English. just means right paths. That is for, if you're a sheep, you follow your shepherd and everywhere that he leads, it's the right path. It's the right place. This was where we needed to go. For a sheep, it's simply right. For a moral being like us as humans, here's the, here's the reality. The right paths are the righteous paths. The closer we walk to our shepherd, the more we walk in his paths, the more we live out a life patterned after his righteousness. He leads me. And this won't change. It will never change. Because he does so for his name's sake. We are branded with his name. His name, his reputation, his glory are now attached to us who have come to him and claimed him as shepherd. We are the sheep of his flock. Names are a funny thing, right? I was at a baseball game yesterday with one of my daughters. And uh, we were in the outfield. 
And uh, the seats were in the outfield. We weren't in the outfield. We weren't like those people that ran on the field. Uh, that's crazy. We were, we were in the outfield seats. And, um, of course, when you're near an outfielder, you're supposed to heckle him, right? So, like the other team, not the Blue Jays. And, and so, in our section, um, everyone was, what are you, you going to do if you're going to heckle someone? What do you do? You call their name. You call their name, right? This guy was McCormick, McCormick, like over and over to try to get inside his head because you can't ignore your name. Every time he does something, either good or bad, you're calling out his name. Conversely, because we were by the Blue Jays' bullpen, when, when, the, when the pitchers run out to come into the game, you cheer for them. What do you cheer? You cheer their name. In the ninth inning, when Jordan Romano runs out and they put the signs all around and the lights change and the big show, what is it that they're running around the banners around the building? It's his name. I'm not really that excited about the name Romano. It's a, it's a good name. But it's not the name. It's the one who came out and struck out like all the guys. It was amazing. His performance is attached to his name. If you know the God of the Bible, you know that he cares about his glory. Friend, here's the glorious comfort for us. Here's why we need to understand this truth, that he does this for his name's sake. It's because you are now in him as safe as his glory is. If his glory can be marred or lost or diminished, then you too can be lost. But if you bear his name, the God who cares about his glory, about his reputation, about his name, will not lose you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And we need to cling to this truth because he does not just lead us in green pastures and by still waters, but his right paths also take us into the valley of deep darkness. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There is evil present, but I will not fear it. There is the shadow of deep darkness, the deepest darkness, even death itself, but I will not fear it, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff, they're just the instruments of a shepherd, right? To, 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 to either ward off attackers or to try to protect the sheep, rein in the sheep. The rod and the staff, though, that in, in and of themselves, they're not anything, right? Like if there had been a hired hand who was there, who had the rod and the staff, they wouldn't be of the same comfort. It's the one who holds the rod and the staff that bring the comfort. They comfort me because of the one who holds them. Did you pick up on the difference? I mean, we do this, right? The, the difference in imagery from verse 3 to verse 4. Did you notice how the green pastures turn to deep valleys? And the still waters turn to darkness? went from images of fullness of life to the fear of death. And, and, and oftentimes that's the difference that we pick up on naturally because we're so prone to pay attention to our circumstances. But did you notice what else changed in verse 4? The he of the good times, the he who leads me in green pastures has become the you of suffering. He goes from the third person, the one who does me good, to the second person, you who are with me in the hard times and in the shadows. 
And this is always the experience of God's people, isn't it? When the Israelites were being delivered out of Egypt and then were being chased through the wilderness, up to the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, it was then as they were being pursued by their enemies that the pillar of cloud and fire came among them. It was when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were actually placed in the fire that a fourth man, one like a son of God, was there in their presence, was with them. It was after Job had lost every earthly good that he said, Oh, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. It was as Stephen was being martyred, stoned to death, that he looked up and beheld the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father and knew the presence of Jesus. It was as he endured the thorn in his flesh that Paul came to know the great empowering presence and grace of our God. God draws near us, the he becomes you in the valley of deep darkness. You know the only exception to this rule? The righteous one who had never sinned. Our good shepherd, left and abandoned by friends, the Jewish people, his own people, turned against him, handed over to the Romans, to the Gentiles, to the nations who turned against him. All humanity turned against him, hanging on a cross, the wrath of God being poured out on him who took not merely the valley of the shadow of death but the reality of death and the fullness of the wrath of God and he is the only one who suffered alone for his people so that his sheep could say, we will never be alone. The good shepherd who suffered once for sinners will never leave the presence of his people, even in a moment of darkness and suffering. When fears draw near through circumstances beyond our control, when walking the paths of righteousness takes us into the deepest valleys of darkness, when walking a long time has just brought us near to the end of our lives and darkness and death are looming here, our God, our shepherd draws near and we can say, he, no, no, you, you are with me. Isn't this the progression of the whole of scriptures? That God, the creator, speaks over all creation and all things come into existence. But then Jesus, the son, takes on flesh and comes and walks amongst us for a time. But then the Holy Spirit draws near and indwells and fills us from within. Our God is constantly drawing more and more near, closer and nearer into the very fibers and fabrics of the soul of our being. You are with me wherever I am. Friend, understand, understand this. The paths of righteousness that we walk will lead into valleys of deep darkness. The cross does not guarantee that your whole life will be roses and peace and joy, but it does guarantee that you will never again be alone, that your shepherd will be with you, 
that the one who has gone before us so that he can always be near us will never leave us or forsake us. He leads us, goes ahead of us. He leads us in green pastures. He comes near and walks beside us in deep darkness. But where is all of this taking us? Yahweh is my shepherd wherever I am until what? Here's the last, the last heading. Until I'm home with you. Until I'm home with you, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Again, I hope you understand the imagery here. Some of you are really great woodworkers, and some of you have actually made your own tables. I've seen it. It's remarkable. It create these beautiful things, and, and, it's, and it's a wonder to look at. It's a, the craftsmanship. It's fantastic. There's something to be said about a beautiful dining room table, but you understand David's not talking about the table, right? He's talking about the food that's on the table. And the reality of being welcomed to the table to participate in the meal and in the fellowship. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. It's the, it's the ancient Near East version of a shower and perfume or cologne. It's like you are now going to smell good and be cleaned up. And my cup overflows. It's, a, it's, it's spending without limit. God's going to make it rain. Just pour, pour the wine. I don't care if it spills. It's just coming and coming. It is abounding blessing, overflowing and abounding. You see where he's brought us? Green pastures and still waters through the valley of deep darkness to his very table. And I want to ask you a question that may seem dumb, but I want you to contemplate. Would you invite a sheep to your table? Would you anoint a sheep with oil? Would you, would you give a sheep a cup of wine? Is the meal being celebrated here, the meal around a table, is significant again, not just because of the food, but because of who is around the table. In this context, to be around the table and to eat together was to celebrate fellowship of a covenantal nature. This is the rejoicing in the covenant that has been established. The relationship between God and whom? Between God and a sheep? We pick up on the flow, the development, the fulfillment of the imagery without even realizing what's happening. See, the ones of us who are willing to come with our cuts and our thorns and our thistles and our broken limbs, to come simply as a sheep, to bring nothing but our muddiness and our mess. To those of us who are willing to come as sheep with a history of wandering, we are brought to the table and anointed and fed and vindicated and loved. And there is one who calls us friend and welcomes us into covenant. And this one, the one, the ones of us who are willing to come, we'll find that in that moment we are no longer sheep, but truly human, truly whole. We've been made truly human in the presence of the one who is truly God. There is beauty and significance in the progression of this psalm. First, Yahweh is a he as a shepherd 
with his people in green pastures. Next, Yahweh becomes you and he draws near to us and speaks to us directly in our moments of darkness. But then in the final movement of the psalm, Yahweh welcomes us into his home to a table where he spreads a feast with those of us who have become truly whole, truly human, entered into covenant and relationship with our God, all of which is what we were created for. All the green pastures, all the days and nights in the valley of deep darkness, all of us will ultimately lead us home to the table with Yahweh. Throughout the psalm, we've seen the closer he draws to us, the more fully human we become, the more we are being prepared through all of this to finally be strengthened to comprehend and to experience the joy that is to be ours in his presence. So that we can enjoy him as true God and he will enjoy us as true image bearers. But understand, all of the things that you would have been prone to fight for for yourself are the things that must be bestowed by God. See, see he, he anoints us with oil. He, he makes us beautiful. He, he spreads this table of rich feasts, and he, and, he, and he gives us to drink. He provides richly and lavishly for us. He even vindicates our person in the presence of our enemies. Friend, never, never let anyone tell you that the Christian faith is one that calls you to simply overlook injustice. Just, just get over injustice. Sometimes in this fallen world, we must move past it, but we move past it not by ignoring it or pretending it doesn't exist, but by simply entrusting it to the one who ultimately will bring final and true justice. And every single way you need to be vindicated, the true and just judge will vindicate you in the presence of your enemies. There is justice to come, friends. Heaven is not the absence of justice. It is justice made visible. This is everything you ever thought to fight for for yourself, for the dignity and the honor that you wanted from people, for the lavish life that you wanted in this world, for, for the approval and the blessing of God. Everything you would have ever fought for in this life, if you're willing to let it go and simply come as a sheep and understand that your shepherd welcomes you, he will make you whole and he will bestow it on you freely. Which simply means that for some of us, we need to stop fighting. You don't have the peace of the green pastures and the still waters because you're still trying to lead yourself. You don't have the peace of the presence of God, knowing who you are and not living with the anxiety of, I need to be vindicated because you're not putting your trust in the one who judges justly. 
You're living with fear in your soul. Am I going to make it? Will I be able to endure? Will I last to the end? Because you have not fully believed that you have a shepherd who has put his name on you and will bring you all the way home. Stop fighting. Do you have a shepherd? Simple question. Do you have a shepherd? Honestly, think about this reality all the way where we began. Yahweh is my shepherd. There's a reason he uses the first person, my shepherd. Can you use that language? Do you have a shepherd? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Have you put everything on him? Is all your hope on him, because here's what we will be able to say. Lastly, verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Understand, as creepy as this image is, this is not following like a shadow. This is following like a stalker or a hunter. This is a chasing after. From the retrospective look at the end of our lives, to be able to look back and say every single step of the way, God was not simply leading me, going out in front of me into green pastures. He was not simply with me, beside me, in valleys of deep darkness, but his goodness and mercy were chasing after me and moving me along. Because you know why? Because nothing else remains. If you've put your trust in the good shepherd and Jesus has died for you, then there is no wrath. There is only goodness and mercy left in his heart towards you. And so this will characterize all of your days until the day when we dwell in his house, finally made whole. Friends, this is the end of the story. I want to read for you from Revelation chapter 7. John, who knew Psalm 23 and who saw the end of all things, declares this over us. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You can sing this psalm in any language. Yahweh is my shepherd wherever I am until he leads me home. Let's pray.